0: Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in uh, to Redeem Church Online. My name is Dave Riesinger. If you don't know, now you know. We are jumping into a brand new sermon series today. So I want you to get locked and loaded, grab your pen, your pad, put your brain on, and get ready to receive more faith, more hope, more love for the Lord himself as we dive into the book of James. But more specifically, we're going to look at the person called James. We just came out of a sermon series in uh, psalm 23 which was very symbolic it was very uh, poetic i'm talking about the sheep shepherd relationship a lot of imagery so we're moving from poetic to practical james is straight to the point he doesn't mince words he gets down to brass tacks and you can take what james says and you can live it out in your daily life he likes to take things that are out here Um, faith concepts, um, theological concepts, and he likes to put feet to the faith and help us know nuts and bolts what we're supposed to do. But before we get into that, um, I'd really like to take a look at the man um, behind this epistle. And as we get to know him, it's so important because our story, our life is a story, our life is a witness. And hopefully, see the goal is, hopefully Dave will live in such a way that I point to Jesus. And when you know my past, and you know the pain that I've been through, when you understand that like, for me, it was a heroin addict father, it was a single mom raising four kids, and I could go through and tell you my story up until the point I met Christ, but my past plays into making my present reality in Christ even more beautiful, because you get to see that Dave Riesinger, who is a sinner saved by grace, is a trophy of grace, and so we're going to see James as a trophy of grace. The title of the message today is James from skeptic to servant. James from skeptic to servant. And so we're going to look at his dramatic journey. So who is James, this epistle? The reason I ask that question is that as you read through the Bible, you're going to see a bunch of people named James, Um, four in particular that come up. So which James wrote this? You see, there's uh, James, the brother of the Apostle John. So James and John were called the sons of thunder. And then you see there's uh, James, the brother of Jesus Christ. Then there's James, the son of Alphaeus, who I think was the cousin of Morpheus from the Matrix. Now, that's just a cheap joke. But when I saw that, um, I realized I'd never name my child Alphaeus. If your name is Alphaeus, I apologize. I just don't understand the meaning, maybe. Number four would be James, the father of Judas, but not Iscariot. So there's a lot of James. So which James are we talking about here? And I was thinking about this. This is, uh, it kind of reminds me of those Italian mob movies where uh, there's these mobsters and they're trying to explain who they're talking about. But a lot of these characters, they don't have last names apparently. So they go by their first name and then some nickname. You know, it's like, I'm talking about Dave. Not One-Eyed Dave, I'm talking about Two-Finger Dave. No, 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 not not Two-Finger Dave from Brooklyn. I'm talking about Two-Finger Dave from the Bronx whose dad happens to make the best cannolis in the five Bronx, in the five boroughs, God bless America, over in the Throg's Neck at Crosstown Diner. That's the Dave I'm talking about. So forget about it. What are you going to do, right? This is what we're kind of dealing with right here. That wasn't bad for a first take. I could probably, a little work, I can get in one of these movies. That was a little audition if you're a movie maker. So... Who is this James? Which one is it, right? So here's the James we're talking about. The writer of this epistle is James, the brother of Jesus. I'm not going to take the time right now to explain how that is, but most theologians would believe and agree with James being the brother, the half-brother of Jesus. So you remember Mary, she was made pregnant um, by a miracle of God, by the Spirit, and uh, Jesus is miraculously conceived, and then after Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph go on to have more kids. Um, In fact, they had multiple kids, and there was a lot of drama in this family. So if, if you look at Jesus, we don't know a lot about his childhood, but we're gonna see a little bit more. You're gonna see that James was one of his brothers, and he had at least two other sisters, and there's another brother named Joseph. There's another brother named Simon. And then Jesus had another brother named Judas. Um, his name, this was not Judas Iscariot who betrayed Jesus. Um, he was also called Jude. And he was also called Thaddeus. I don't know how you get Thaddeus from Jude and, and Judas. Uh, but if I'm, if I'm this guy, I'm changing my name to Thaddeus for sure because I don't want any connection to the Judas that we read about. This would be like uh, naming your kid Adolf, and all of a sudden Hitler comes along and puts Adolf on the map in a big way. So I don't know why he went with these other uh, aliases, but that's his brother, that's his family, and here's the plot and the journey. We would assume that Jesus um, uh, obviously, being the oldest, that James would have been the next in line. That's who they think would have been the next son born. So he would have been the oldest. We also see that he's pretty confident. You're going to see in his writings that um, he doesn't mind speaking his piece. Now he did that in this epistle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he was probably the leader of the pack. And you know, you might think, well, um, because his brothers didn't believe, his family wasn't on board with the fact that he was Jesus, the Messiah. We assume his mom was because an angel came to her, obviously. But there's some drama we're going to read about. And you'd think like, well, why wouldn't his brothers believe that he was God, the Messiah, when they got to live with him every single day? Now, I love this because he was a human just like you and I. So think about this. How hard would it be for you, to look at your brother or your sister as God, right? Because there is this sibling rivalry that takes place. Whether someone is perfect or not, we are fallen, Jesus wasn't, and so in their humanity, there was some tension, right? I remember my sister Dana, she used to babysit us, mom would be at work, dad wasn't around anymore, and uh, she, uh, she did a great job. So Dana, if you're watching this, I'm not putting you on blast, but I remember one time in particular, um, she, uh, she would make us call her Queen if we wanted something. And so, you know, can I have some, a snack? Um, we'll call me Queen. I remember, like, I said, hey, Dana, can I have some Captain Crunch? I didn't want to ask her. I was so mad that I had to, but I know she was in charge. And I said, can I have some Captain Crunch? And she's like, if you refer to me by the title Queen, I shall grant your request. And I'm like, okay, Queen Dana, can I have some Captain Crunch? She's like, no, you peasant be gone from my sight, right? She didn't actually say that. She gave me the Captain Crunch. But I remember how angry I was, like the last thing I wanna call my sibling is queen or king. Now, can you imagine there's rumblings that this Jesus, my brother, could be God, right? They weren't having it. Have you ever noticed cults? Like cults that start where specifically the cult leader claims to be God, this actually still happens right? They will have a ton of followers sometimes. And these followers will do all kinds of crazy things for this guru, this leader, this divine, self-appointed, you know, God-man. But you know one thing all these followers in a cult have in common? None of them are his immediate family. I promise you that. Why? Because, you know, Jojo, my brother, is not bowing down and kissing my feet. Jane, the sister, is not going to worship her brother because they know him too well. But there's this interesting thing that happens. Jesus is actually God, and they don't believe, but it's for a time, and then they come to faith. And so all that to say, James was most likely kind of the instigator or the leader of this disbelief that the rest of the family or the rest of the siblings were a part of. And so let me read a couple things that kind of point out where James was before he became the author of this epistle that blesses so many and is going to bless you over this series. Uh, Number one, James thought Jesus was mad, like out of his mind crazy. Mark 3, 20 and 21 says, One time Jesus entered a house and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. Right? So older generations would be like, man, Jesus got a few screws loose. He's not playing with a full deck, right? So this is what James literally believed. Like, my brother is crazy. He's lost his mind. He's got all these followers. But my brother Jesus is an absolute nutcase. So think about this. The dude that we're about to study... Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who grew up in the house of Jesus, actually thought he was a nutcase for until he until he resurrected, and we'll get to that in a minute. So for his full ministry, um, so how did Jesus respond to his unbelieving family? You can see there's tension here. In Mark three thirty-one, just a few uh, verses down, it says, "Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and sent word for him to come out and talk with them." there was a crowd sitting around Jesus and someone said, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside asking for you. Now watch Jesus' response. Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him who were gathered in the ministry setting, the circle of the believing, and he says, look at these. These are my mother and my brothers. Anyone who does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother." Did he really just do his fam bam like that? I, I mean, think about how you would have felt. Like Jesus, this famous rabbi now, he's getting notoriety, and he literally is like, man, who's my brother? He didn't, he didn't disown him, but that could come off as insulting. Jesus loved his familia, but he did not play games. And you can see where him and James might have butt heads. And you can see, like, can you imagine living under the shadow of a, of a, of a brother who never does anything wrong? Um, you know, imagine all the things that happened and the parents sorting it out and trying to figure out who broke the vase and who stole the candy and who got into the Skittles and who left the door unlocked and who broke the window, right? Mom and dad know, Jesus, it's never Jesus. So Jesus, you don't need to be a part of this meeting. Uh, All the rest of you guys, come here. Let's talk and let's figure it out. So come on, man, they're human. So imagine this. So James, man, he might've had some bitterness toward Jesus and it kind of looks like it because number two, um, not only did he think he was mad, but James actually mocks Jesus. In John 7, three through five, it says, And Jesus' brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. Now, this is total sarcasm. You can't become famous if you hide like this, Jesus. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. And then verse five says, for even his brothers didn't believe in him. They were sarcastically mocking him with disbelieving hearts. And again, James, the older one, was probably leading the charge here. And then not only that, but we see another like crazy thing happen. And it's actually while Jesus is being crucified. And uh, I didn't really notice the significance of this until recently. But in John 19, 26, now remember, Judas had just betrayed Jesus. Peter um, had denied Jesus. All the disciples had scattered once Jesus got arrested. And there's John, who's you know, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's this, probably the youngest disciple and he's right there. And there's Mary and there's you know, some women around and you know, there's probably a crowd watching from a distance. But Jesus is naked, bleeding on a cross. He's about to finish his work. He's about to literally pay for the sin of mankind as the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. And in agony, his visage marred more than any man. Think about this. He was unrecognizable, and yet he has the presence of mind to make sure that someone takes care of his mother. Now, who do you think would take care of mom? Joseph is dead. Um, There are four brothers remaining. I think James would probably be about 30 years old, maybe three years after Jesus, at least 30 then the other brothers would probably be in their late 20s, mid-20s. There was a couple sisters. But a woman in this culture was not going to survive without the help of a man. And if she didn't get married, it's the son's job to take care of mom. And most likely, it would be the next son in line, right? Um, and so what, is, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus do here? He says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom lo- he loved standing nearby, He said to his mother, now remember, the disciple he just mentioned here is is John. John is not his brother. John is not immediate family like that. He's just probably a 20-year-old disciple at this point, okay? He's a young dude, um, and he says to his mother, Mother, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. So from that hour, this disciple took her into his home. That is just crazy. Like Jesus is, you know, we talk about this as siblings, you know, okay, when mom and dad get older, who's going to take care of Where are they going to live, right? And when you ask the question, like Jesus is dying, he's the oldest, he's the man of the house, which one of you is going to take mom? Jesus is like, none of y'all jokers are getting mom. In fact, I'm going to make sure that you don't. I'm giving her to John and she's actually going to move from our house and she's gonna live with a different person. Why? That seems so insulting. Was Jesus like taking a jab and trying to get back at James? No, but he makes this incredible kingdom uh, uh, stance or statement, and it's this. That from the cross, he's making a statement that it's not the blood that we share, but it's the belief that we share that matters most. And apparently, there was no one in the family who was a believer. And there was no one who had the spiritual uh, DNA that Jesus wanted. And so instead of entrusting his mom with blood, he entrusted his mom with belief. And he gave the care of his very own mother to his very dedicated disciple. And he makes the statement that the spirituality And the mind of Christ and the belief and the faith, that's what I want covering my mother. Not just because you share her DNA physically. And he makes this statement. So again, how bad did that hurt when Jesus, who had the power of attorney as older brother, to be able to do this? But you know what? We see that something changes. We see that it's, uh, here's James who doesn't believe, and he, he goes from skeptic to servant. And I'm going I'm to just bust through this, but you're going to get a really good picture at the man that we're about to uh, glean from as he was under the inspiration of the Holy, Holy Spirit. So number one, he meets Jesus after he's resurrected. If you didn't believe that he was the Son of God, you didn't believe he was the Messiah, well then maybe when he raises from the dead because you saw his crucifixion, you knew he was buried, you knew there was no hoax involved and it says in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven, then Jesus appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So it looks like he made a special visit to James, his brother, because he had a plan for his life and we assume it's at this point that James finally realizes that his brother is who the rumblings are claimed him to be. Number two, we see that James, who was transformed from skeptic to servant of God, he demonstrates true faith and true humility in how he opens his epistle. And I think this is something we can glean from because if you've truly met Jesus, right, he's not just gonna be your, your, your best friend, right? He, he should be your best friend. But I see a lot of times, and me included, There's been times in my life that I have have lost perspective and lost sight of how magnificent and incredible and awesome our Savior is. And sometimes I I treat him as though we're on an equal plane and that, you know, my will, as long as it's not evil, um, I can kind of do that versus like submitting myself as a servant of my Savior. And so we see that James, who's the brother of Jesus, opens his epistle in verse 1 of James 1, and he says, James, he's introducing himself, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Now, come on, man, just look in your own humanity. If Jesus is your actual brother and he's raised from the dead and over 500, don't you wanna kind of name drop a little bit you know, when you introduce somebody in your family that's famous, even if it's a fourth cousin. Yeah, my fourth cousin, twice removed, played in the NBA, you know, whatever. We tend to name drop and we want to associate with people who could give us a little bit more street cred. But I love this because he never used his position as Jesus' blood relative as his basis for authority. Rather, he identifies himself not according to his bloodbirth but according to his new birth. He has such humility that he won't even present himself as the brother of Jesus. No, 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 no. I am the servant of Jesus. Once I recognize that he is Lord, then I recognized that I am his servant. Now, I love this because in Christ, you actually become a sibling of Christ. He is your brother and he introduced us to dad. So we get Jesus' dad and he's our big brother, but yet while he's our big brother, we are his servants, and James reveals true salvation, in the fact that he could say this after all the years, 30 years of animosity, or maybe 20, you know, uh, once he got to the age of really knowing what was going on, you know, and so we see that James, not only did he get saved, and believe, and show christ likeness, but he also Um, holds what many consider the highest ranking position of authority and leadership in the early church as an apostle and as the bishop of the mother church in Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was the headquarters and the church starts there and it spreads out. And yet during this time, which he led for about 20 years, through a famine, through persecution, through many challenges, we read that even the apostle Paul showed a reverence and submission of authority to James even Peter one of the apostles right James had this position and we see it in Acts 15 I'm not going to read it but it's the council it's the Jerusalem council and they're meeting and they're they're wrestling about what we should do with these Gentiles if you're not a Jew you're a Gentile and they're like there was one group in the church saying hey these Gentiles they need to be circumcised in order to be saved and so there's this big debate, and now they're going to bring the council together. So you talk about the celebrity pastors getting together. You had Paul, you had Barnabas, you had Peter, you had James, you had all the other apostles and then elders, some of them unnamed, that came together at the mothership that, that James was the, the lead bishop over. And they start to have this conversation, and everybody presents their case. And then it says, then a stillness came upon the group, upon the church and and these elders and apostles, and and paraphrasing, James stood up and he said, here's my decision. My decision is they don't need to get circumcised to be saved, that it's by faith. And he gives a couple things that they should avoid. Now, I imagine there was probably some Gentile men, a bunch of them like leaning in, trying to whisper because they knew what was at stake. And they were like, man, what's the verdict going to be? We wanna be saved, we wanna go to heaven, but man, my mom didn't take care of this when I was a baby. I don't wanna have to go under the knife. Do I need to get more graphic? And so you got some bearded fishermen, carpenters, leaning in, tears in their eyes, and they're just like, oh God, please say we don't need to go the Jewish route. Please give us a pass. And then bam, he says it. I just imagine grown men erupting in joy. There's no circumcision, we're saved without it. We'll move on from this because it's getting a little awkward. But thank God for grace. You know what? He wants to circumcise our hearts. And this is what James made the final decision in. And you see that he was given a prominent position. And yet when you think of the big heroes of our faith, James doesn't make the list. It's this book that's tucked away, you know, a little deeper in the New Testament, yet it was the first one written. And I think there's something to it that James, who arguably has the the highest-ranking position of authority, um, seems to be kind of quiet, and yet he carries big weight. And that decision was monumental. One of the greatest decisions ever made um, post-resurrection. One more, or two more things we see. He became respected as an incredibly integrous man. Um, he was actually given nicknames, just like One-Eyed Dave and Two-Fingered Dave and Jimmy the Rat and whatever. They had names for each other back then. He was known as James the Just. Um, they also called him um, the, James the Bulwark of the, uh, of the people. Bulwark means a, a, a pillar or a wall, that he was, he was a sturdy foundation for this church, right? And you and I are called to be similar to that. We're called to be just. We're called to be people that others can point to and say, hey, just a man. N- no one's special in themselves, but a pillar in this community of faith in your church. And uh, he was also known as camel knees, which sounds like an insult, but literally they say he, he either developed massive calluses or knots on his knees because he spent so much time in prayer. And then finally, we see that The journey for James ended in James going from skeptic to savior to martyr. He would not deny his brother who was his Lord and savior. Now think about this. It's one thing if you're getting a lot of money and a lot of fame to keep up a hoax, but for a brother who was public about his disbelief of his brother to then come to faith and then come to the point that he could lose his life if anybody testifies about the reality and the authenticity and the validity of Jesus Christ as Savior, man, James does a great job because it came down to people wanting to kill him. They said, hey, James, go up on to the top of the pinnacle. They fooled him. They said, go up on the top of the pinnacle of the, of the temple and preach so that we can all hear you. And Once he got up there, he starts preaching and they shove this old man off. He falls from the very top, smashes to the ground, doesn't die. While he's In agony, they grab stones and they start stoning him. And while they're stoning him, Josephus and other uh, historians record that he's praying for the very people that are stoning him. Does that remind you of his brother? Oh yeah, his savior, his Lord. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Man, James got the real thing. And he still wouldn't die. And finally someone came up and clubbed him in his head, crushed his head. And he gave his life. Skeptic, to saved, to martyr. And he leaves us inspired words so that we too, who might be skeptical, who might not know the Lord Jesus, who might categorize Jesus as something other than my God, my King, my Lord, and my Savior. And so I just want to close by giving you the opportunity to put Jesus in the right category. I don't know where you're at, but I promise you this, God can handle your skepticism but he also wants to show you his resurrection. And if you'll just say, God, show me, please show me. I don't wanna be blind. I want to know if you are who they say you are. Or maybe you're already saved, quote unquote, but you've been treating Jesus like something other than Lord and master. That it's not really his will. It's kind of a joint, you know, joint situation. I don't know where you're at in your faith, but I promise you this. Jesus wants to take you on a journey. He wants to eliminate your skepticism by lovingly showing up and proving to you that he is every bit and more that that the word says he is or that you've been told, and that he has a plan for your life, and that he wants to give you a new birth, and he wants to put a fire in you that would literally be willing to die rather than deny the one who hung on a cross. Can we pray? So, Father, I ask for my friends that are watching right now, I pray that you would reveal your heart. You would reveal the love that only you can give us. That love that would rather die than live without us. A love that said, no, I know you can't come to me because you're sinful and I'm perfect, so I'll come to you. That came from heaven to earth, that came from streets of gold to to streets of dirt, that entered our mess, that put skin on, that embraced our faults and failures and then took those faults and failures on the cross and gave us forgiveness and redemption. And I pray right now, God, that you would, be, that you would bring forgiveness and healing, that you would remove, remove skepticism and that you would cause us to be people who recognize that we are servants, we're sons and we're family with our Lord and Savior. We thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you think this uh, message would be a blessing to someone, uh, please share it. Um, The power of words is so crucial. And just by sharing this message with somebody, you could literally change their life and snatch one person out of eternal damnation and populate heaven with one more. We love you. God bless you. Have a great week.